This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. By the winter of 1846... Ireland's green pastures were mottled with ditches dug for the dead. Public health officials could barely keep up with all the bodies, but some refused to give up hope. One morning, a local doctor was making the rounds in the town of Skibbereen when he came across a tumbled cottage. Walking amongst its ruins, he spotted a foot sticking out from the rubble. Beneath the debris, he found a family of seven, huddled together under a single, lice-infested cloak. They were so emaciated that they could all fit within its narrow span. Looking closer, he noticed an ashen figure among them. One of the family members had been dead for several hours. The rest of the family may have been too dazed by hunger to notice, or perhaps they were too weak to drag the body to one of the mass graves on the outskirts of town. Families all over Ireland were facing these same bleak realities of starvation and disease. And the worst was still yet to come. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second and final episode on the Irish potato famine. Between 1846 and 1852, over a million people lost their lives from starvation and disease, and hundreds of thousands more were displaced from their homes. Last week, we explored the root causes of the Irish potato famine, both natural and man-made. This week, we'll cover how the famine evolved over the course of six years and entrenched itself as one of the darkest marks on Irish history. 
Since 1845, the potato blight and ensuing famine had been bringing people to their knees. Still, in that first year of the famine, there was hope that things would eventually get better. But when farmers went to harvest their potato crop in 1846, they found that the blight had gotten worse. The spuds dripped with rot, completely inedible. People couldn't walk a few miles without noticing the foul stench in the air. A priest in Galway noted, If traveling by night, you would know when a potato field was nearby from the smell. And the smell was all the Irish people were left with. In order to keep turning a profit, British landowners shipped any unaffected crops out of the country. Wheat and even a few healthy potatoes left Irish ports for foreign shores. The little food that did remain was in such high demand that it drove prices sky high, preventing the poor from being able to purchase it. To the landowners, profits mattered more than people. The failed potato crop had a knock-on effect for starving Irish farmers. In addition to being unable to pay for food, many couldn't afford their rent on the land they worked. Their British landlords swiftly evicted them, essentially sentencing their pauper tenants to death. It wasn't just the landlords who were abandoning the Irish in their time of need. The British government was against them, too. During the first half of 1846, the Irish had relied on the support of Britain's Prime Minister, Robert Peel. Thanks to his efforts, laws restricting the import of foreign goods into Ireland were reversed. It allowed much-needed food relief to come into the country. However, by helping the Irish, Peel had painted a target on his back. Conservatives were convinced Peel had betrayed his own party by straying from their economic policies. Right after Parliament repealed the restrictive trade laws in June 1846, Peel was forced to resign. After Peel left office, Sir Charles Trevelyan took the lead on handling famine relief for Ireland. Though he never became prime minister, Trevelyan's role as assistant secretary to Her Majesty's Treasury put him in charge of foreign economic affairs, and he used his power to reverse all the relief Peel had provided to the Irish. Trevelyan was one of many British elites who felt that the Irish had brought the famine upon themselves. If they'd managed their land more efficiently, they wouldn't be having so many problems. This was actually partly true, but it was the English, not the Irish, who were most responsible for the mismanagement. As Ireland's population increased in the 1800s, English landowners had split their estates up into smaller and smaller pieces to rent to as many people as possible. The plots of land were eventually so small, a family could only earn enough to sustain themselves by plotting a single profitable crop, potatoes. On top of that, the land tenure system actively discouraged tenants from doing upkeep on their land. If the land was improved, its value would increase, and thus, so would the rent. And since they didn't actually own their land, they had no incentive to make improvements on it. After all, they could be evicted at any moment. The actual landowners were mostly English absentees who never set foot on their Irish estates, so they didn't take much responsibility for the land either. This left a mess of inefficient, poorly kept farms that weren't prepared to weather a disaster like this. According to British officials, the blame for this fell squarely on the Irish. Trevelyan encouraged a laissez-faire policy, let them fix their own problems, 
or suffer the consequences. This attitude was undoubtedly rooted in a prejudice against the Irish Catholics. They were portrayed as lazy and foolish for letting the problem spiral out of hand. Trevelyan even went so far as to write that the judgment of God sent the calamity to teach the Irish a lesson. Despite the general British callousness towards the Irish, there were a few sympathetic friends that helped them through the famine. The Quakers, otherwise known as the Religious Society of Friends, saw Ireland suffering for what it was, a terrible tragedy. Although there were only an estimated 3,000 Quakers in Ireland, they had the money and international influence to provide a significant amount of relief. Quakers upheld equality and goodwill above all else, making charity one of the most important tenets of their religion. The Irish Quakers arranged the import of grains from brother organizations in England and the U.S. in order to help feed the starving Irish masses. Those grains were distributed through soup kitchens across Ireland. Many of the soup kitchens were government or charity run. However, some landlords followed the Quakers' lead and set up soup kitchens of their own. At first, many poor Irish Catholics distrusted these soup kitchens. In the past, Protestant clergymen had pressed them to convert in exchange for food. Those who did were derogatorily referred to as supers. Taking the soup had come to hold a blasphemous connotation among diehard Catholics. But the overwhelming hunger from the potato famine took precedence over religious concerns. At their height, the soup kitchens were feeding as many as three million people a day. But even if people were getting fed, there was still widespread disease to worry about. While starvation accounted for nearly half of the one million deaths during the famine, sickness constituted the other half. People are more likely to contract an illness when they're malnourished. Across the Irish countryside, lice spread diseases from person to person. In the cities, sickness could proliferate simply from people's close proximity to one another. The open graves lying around the country, known as famine pits, didn't help to stop the spread of disease either. As the bodies piled up, their contagions spread to the living. The most widespread and serious diseases were typhus, relapsing fever, and dysentery. In the starving people's weakened states, fighting off these deadly diseases was nearly impossible. And beyond the physical symptoms, these diseases had psychological effects. While caught up in fevers, people could become delirious or depressed. The same went for hunger. Starvation can cause depression, paranoia, and hysteria. Stories circulated about hunger victims failing to recognize the faces of their loved ones. Long-married couples came to regard each other as strangers. The barely living were mistakenly tossed into communal graves, laid to waste away beside the dead. Starving people can be especially sensitive to light and noise. Some families were so affected, they barricaded themselves within their homes and shut the doors and windows. Sometimes they were so starved, they didn't have the strength to leave when the walls caved in from disrepair. As starvation and disease escalated, so did the death toll. Nearly all of Ireland fell victim to the famine. And still, the British government failed to respond to the crisis. By 1847, two long years into the famine, the situation was looking hopeless. And against all odds, things were about to get even worse. Coming up, 
we'll delve into the famine's worst year yet. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1847, panic from the potato famine in Ireland was at its height. People were leaving the Irish countryside in droves. Widespread death and disease would give the year its somber moniker, Black 47. Prior to 1847, people living in the major Irish cities of Dublin, Cork, and Belfast hadn't been as affected by the fallout of the potato blight. Generally, urban populations had more access to diverse food sources and were less dependent on the potato than people in the countryside. But that didn't mean they were immune to the famine's effects. As people flocked from the countryside to the cities, they brought disease with them. Throughout 1847, overcrowding in cities made it easy for famine-related diseases to spread. People were dying in droves. But the British government continued to withhold aid. That was partially because, in the spring of 1847, the British Empire was tangled up in a financial crisis of its own. While the British government used gold reserves to import food for the Irish, rampant speculation had caused the stock market to nosedive. A dwindling supply of gold and increased interest rates caused several prominent banks to close down, leaving many to question the stability of the British financial system. As the crisis grew, British Treasurer Sir Charles Trevelyan and the Conservative majority in Parliament didn't want to continue to give the Irish so-called handouts. Instead, they put the burden on the Irish to solve their own problems. They doubled down on Ireland's poor law system, which had been in place since 1838. The poor laws set up a network of workhouses where the poor could receive food and board in exchange for labor. They were meant to house mostly the old and very young. But at the start of 1847, the British government opened them to the masses. Hearing that new workhouses were being set up in city centers, people flooded in from the countryside. At its peak in February and March of 1847, around 10% of the Irish population was involved in the poor law system. On paper, it seemed like the workhouses were an efficient way to feed, clothe, and house those who would otherwise be left destitute. But in reality, they were more like prisons that exploited the poor in their most desperate time of need. It didn't matter whether one was young, old, man, or woman. Everyone was put to work. Poor families were often separated by age and gender and were only able to see each other on Sundays for church services. To ensure everyone did their assigned jobs, guards roamed the halls. If anyone was caught taking a break, they were threatened with being kicked out to the streets. The tasks were often menial, tedious, and punishing, and they rarely paid enough income to help the workers earn enough to leave. Among the many laborious jobs they were expected to do, workers crushed animal bones into powder for fertilizer. But guards put an end to this job when they found out the workers were eating the bone dust. Even with the food the workhouse provided, people were so hungry that they'd resort to anything. 
Ultimately, the burden workhouses created for the Irish people outweighed any benefit they provided. They were costing the Irish government money that could have gone to more humane relief efforts. Although the British government had mandated the expansion of workhouses, the Irish government was responsible for actually funding them. To foot the bill, Irish citizens were forced to pay an additional tax. This only compounded the problem. As Irish tenant farmers became increasingly bankrupt, by 1847, the citizens could no longer afford to pay the poor law union's taxes. And without the tax funding, local relief efforts began to fold in on themselves. One by one, workhouses started to shut down. At the end of the day, there were more people living in poverty and less programs to support them. The workhouses weren't the only relief system Sir Charles Trevelyan ruined. In March and June of 1847, he also began to shut down the government-run soup kitchens across Ireland. Despite the Quakers' best efforts, they couldn't feed everyone by themselves. With soup kitchens and workhouses now being few and far between, more people were dying than ever. With no sign that the potato crop would recover anytime soon, the situation in Ireland was looking increasingly bleak. Many people decided that the only way to escape death was to leave the country altogether. Between 1845 and 1855, more than 1.5 million refugees left Ireland for the United States. That number doesn't account for the thousands more that left their home for other shores. In 1847 alone, more than 215,000 people set sail from Ireland. Many landlords promised to help their tenants connect with agents in the U.S. and Canada. These agents would supposedly provide the immigrants with a small sum of money, some food, and clothing. By saying goodbye to their homeland, they thought they were leaving hunger and disease behind. Unfortunately, many of them never made it to friendlier shores. In order to get to the better life awaiting them in North America, they would have to survive an incredibly dangerous voyage. The trip across the Atlantic was so perilous, the vessels carrying the refugees were dubbed coffin ships. These coffin ships were almost always overcrowded. Many of them didn't have adequate food or water on board. One ship sailing from Ireland to Canada should have been carrying 12,500 gallons of water for its number of passengers, but it only had 8,700. Beyond not having enough water or food, that ship's 276 passengers were meant to share 32 beds. On the 3,000-mile journey across the Atlantic, passengers had to suffer through these miserable conditions for anywhere between 40 days and three months. The lack of supplies and accommodation was all too familiar for the Irish refugees. And these issues exacerbated another problem that followed them from their homeland, disease. Overcrowding led to the easy spread of contagions. An estimated one in five passengers died from either disease or starvation. These were about the same odds they would have faced if they'd just stayed home. Even for the lucky ones who stayed healthy, overcrowding also hindered the ship's ability to sail. With so many people weighing down the vessel, there was an increased danger of scraping against underwater rocks, which could cause the ship to capsize. And yet, people were so desperate to leave Ireland, they would still brave these coffin ships. 
Many even risked the voyage in autumn and winter, when the weather was yet another force stacked against them. Even if the ships arrived at their destinations, there were hurdles for the refugees to clear. Once they arrived, many of the sick passengers were quarantined to prevent their diseases from spreading. Many Irish immigrants died in quarantine while docked just offshore. In the spring of 1847, ships from Ireland were arriving at the port of Quebec nearly every other day. By June, there were 40 ships waiting offshore, holding 14,000 quarantined immigrants. Many of the people waiting weren't even sick, but because they had been exposed to infection, they were forced to wait until the disease had run its course. Eventually, the infected were quarantined on a small island 30 miles from Quebec City called Grosse-Île. Once Canadian officials dropped them off, they were expected to travel on their own to makeshift clinics further inland. Already weakened from illness and the long journey, many people died before they reached the clinic's doors. Even if they did reach the makeshift hospitals, recovery was little more than a pipe dream. The understaffed clinics were run down and infested, turning them into a place for the sick to get sicker. The quarantine at Grosse-Ile was soon shut down, leaving many of the remaining immigrants stranded on the ships. Quebec's government offered many of them free passage to other Canadian provinces in order to alleviate their overwhelmed hospitals. Once there, they could finally start their new lives. Or so they thought. Many of the refugees had no way to survive once they finally got to Canada. The agents their landlords had promised to put them in contact with didn't exist. Now homeless on foreign shores, with no way to make a living, poor Irish families roamed the streets, begging for small mercies. By the fall of 1847, many of the people who had left Ireland wondered whether they had made a mistake. They heard from family and friends back in Ireland that the potato harvest that autumn was slightly better than in past years. The blight looked to be on its way out. Spuds were no longer turning up black and slick, but hardy and healthy. However, because so many people were too weak to farm, not enough potatoes had been planted to get the crop back up to its necessary yields. But a small viable harvest was better than a completely useless one. Due to the renewed food supply, 1848 saw a decrease in deaths. It seemed like the pain of Black 47 was firmly in the rearview mirror. Full of optimism, in the late summer of 1848, hopeful farmers went to their potato beds, expecting to dig up a harvest of healthy crops. Instead, they dredged up shovelfuls of rot. Coming up, Ireland's Great Famine comes to its deadly end. Now, back to the story. By the end of Black 47, things were looking up in Ireland. The potatoes from that year's fall harvest were healthy. The blight seemed to be over. Unfortunately, it was only a temporary reprieve. In 1848, the potato blight returned. A wet and windy summer had provided the perfect conditions for the disease to regenerate and spread. And there wouldn't be any help coming from their British overlords. Throughout 1848, Trevelyan and the British Parliament continued to restrict relief for the Irish. 
With the false promise of the healthy 1847 harvest, they continued to shut down soup kitchens and close up workhouses. And with Irish farms beginning to generate profit again, the British government increased taxation on the farmers and landlords. But the increased profits were nowhere near enough to pay these new taxes. With landlords falling deeper into debt, many of them ramped up evictions of their penniless tenants. With nowhere else to go, many Irish people just curled up on the side of the road and waited to die. And as the winter of 1848 approached, death was as close to a sure thing as they'd had in years. At the end of 1848, the famine's return was exacerbated by a cholera outbreak. As news of the terrible situation reached British shores, public opinion finally turned against the government's repressive anti-Irish policies. With the crisis showing no signs of abating, the British government was forced to relax the poor law system, which was clearly doing more harm than good. More humane aid policies were the only way for the British to save a little face as the death toll mounted. They settled on allowing relief to be given to Irish citizens if, and only if, no other provisions under the existing system were available. That is, if someone requesting aid had not been admitted into a workhouse, he or she would be able to receive food relief. By 1849, the Kilrush Poor Law Union, one of 130 in the country, was sustaining nearly 10,000 people on relief outside the workhouses. With the unions expanding their aid, hundreds of thousands of hungry citizens were finally being fed. However, by this point in the crisis, it was a fairly empty gesture. In the fall of 1849, four years after it first appeared in 1845, the potato blight finally began to disappear from Irish lands. And this time, it was for good. At first, people were hesitant to believe it was truly gone. At the end of 1847, they had been certain that the blight was over, just to see it return again the next year. But as the months wore on, it looked like it was finally over. Counties affected by the blight grew few and far between. And yet, it took several years for the country to truly recover. Although the blight ended in 1849, the famine itself continued until 1852. By then, the country had irrevocably changed. Because of the deaths and immigration the famine caused, the Irish population had fallen from over 8 million to about 6.5 million between 1841 and 1851. And yet, not everyone viewed the famine as a tragedy. British officials like Sir Charles Trevelyan were actually pleased with its outcome. The preface of the 1851 Irish Census report delivered to the Queen read, We feel it will be gratifying to Your Excellency to find that the Irish population has been diminished. This callousness towards such a serious tragedy is disappointing, but not surprising. Towards the end of the famine, Trevelyan wrote a book on the matter titled The Irish Crisis. In its pages, he defended his decision to restrict aid to the Irish using thinly veiled bigotry to explain his rationale. But despite the suffering and systemic oppression the country faced, the Irish people's resilience survived beyond the potato famine. Barely 20 years after the Great Famine dissipated, their resolve was tested once again. 
1879, a new blight struck the Irish potato crop. Those who had survived the Great Famine surely feared for their lives. However, this new round of troubles was far less dangerous. Ireland had undergone rapid industrialization since the late 1840s. The presence of railways made it much easier to transport food throughout the country, and the greater wealth that came with industrialization also ensured a greater variety of food sources. Although Ireland had yet to escape the yoke of the British Empire, it had at least freed itself from its reliance on the potato. And in 1922, most of Ireland finally freed itself from Britain as well when it became an independent state. There was still a long way to go before relations between the two countries improved, but at long last, the freedom the Irish had craved for so long had finally arrived. And yet, the famine's memory still hasn't faded away. As of 2020, Ireland is one of the few European nations that have a smaller population than they did in the 1800s, rounding out at just over 4.8 million. Ireland still mourns the lives and the way of life lost during the Great Famine. The survivors' descendants remember the dark times of blight and famine in song, story, and memorials. From Dublin to Boston and all across the world, the skeletal statues of famine memorials are a powerful reminder of the suffering that forever reconfigured Ireland and her history. They're also a reminder that famine can hit any place at any time. Although nature blessed Ireland with her green-gray shores... Nature also cursed her with blight and famine. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. For more information on the Irish potato famine, amongst the many sources we used, we found Black 47 and Beyond by Cormac O'Grada extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Justine Bede, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. Kate Leonard.